Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Pharmacologic Management of Poorly Controlled Asthma is provided by the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American Thoracic Society and is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP and GlaxoSmithKline. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to the American Thoracic Society and American Academy of Family Physicians educational activity on the topic of severe asthma. This is Module 3, Pharmacological Management of Poorly Controlled Asthma. And I'm Sally Wenzel, Professor of Public Health Medicine and Immunology at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm Barbara Yawn, Adjunct Professor of Department of Family and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. And you can see our disclosures here. The learning objectives, of we, as we have talked about, are from Module 1 was to talk about the diagnosis, stratification, and phenotyping of asthma. In Module 2, we talked about effective communication strategies to facilitate patients' awareness and improve outcomes. In this Module 3, we're going to talk about developing evidence-based treatment plans for severe asthma. And in Module 4, we review the clinical data for safety and efficacy of existing targeted therapies for the treatment of severe asthma. So again, here in Module 3, we're going to talk about developing evidence-based treatment plans for severe asthma, looking at symptoms, phenotypes, trigger avoidance, and lung function. Reminding you about the definition of severe asthma, that after we confirm the diagnosis, we identify uncontrolled asthma, we try to address all of the modifiable issues and the comorbidities. If after doing that, we continue to have asthma, which requires treatment with high-dose ICS and a second controller, or systemic corticosteroids to prevent it from becoming uncontrolled, or asthma that remains uncontrolled despite this therapy, we say the patient has severe asthma. So what are the manifestations of severe asthma? Well, they're really kind of what you would expect. Poor symptom control, including nighttime awakenings, which are really, really bothersome and disruptive for patients' lives. Limitations of activities, Again, very disruptive and definitely what we don't want to do. I mean, patients will tolerate maybe a little wheezing uh, a few days a week, but when they have to change their activities, none of us should tolerate Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Overuse of rescue medications, and what's the definition of overuse? It obviously varies, but most people think that they should not be using them daily, and if they do, certainly no more than a couple of puffs a day. What's your sort of barrier or threshold? And, and certainly I would agree with exactly what you said, that I think poorly controlled asthma really is, if you're using, having to use it every day, that's poorly controlled asthma. And, and of course, the more severe the patient is, and the moving away from the difficult asthma and moving towards severe asthma, unfortunately, that threshold actually can, can be pretty hard to overcome. So you still have patients taking their uh, albuterol, their short-acting beta agonist, four or five times a day in many cases. That is very poorly controlled asthma. And certainly, we've always said that if you're going through a canister a month of albuterol, that that is a clear sign of poorly controlled asthma. Well, and just to remind people, a canister a month is an average of four puffs every day because there's 120 puffs, puffs in that canister. So that is one of the reasons we've said a canister a month is really too not much, acceptable. Too much. Certainly people who have frequent severe exacerbations, these are the ones that require uh, systemic corticosteroids, any serious exacerbation, which would include a hospitalization and the evidence of airflow limitations, a low FEV1. And amazingly, a lot of these people, we're not talking of an FEV1 of 75% of predicted. We're talking 50, 60, and even less. Mm -hmm. uh, so these people do have significant evidence of airflow limitations. Yes, and I, and I think that uh, is 
certainly a point to be made, too. I think if many times if a physician sees an FEV1 of less than 70% predicted, they will start to call that patient's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, when in fact severe asthma can present with that very low lung function, and they do not have to get a diagnosis of COPD. And I think that's very important because asthma and COPD do have different treatment strategies. Absolutely. And they have different long-term prognoses frequently. So we do want to make the correct diagnosis. diagnosis. Absolutely. So evidence-based treatment plans, we certainly have to identify and manage triggers and comorbidities. There's no question about that. Uh, and so that's important in the treatment. We have to assess and correct inhaler technique. And we've talked about it a couple of times that you don't do it just once and then, oh, they'll be fine. <laughs> There's excellent evidence that within three to six months, 30 to 50% of the patients who had pretty good inhaler technique will have at least one major error that can affect their ability Absolutely. to get the medicine where it needs to be. So that's important that you do do that recurrently. Address adherence, and again, not by saying, well, you are taking your medicines, aren't you? But one of the ways that I think that probably both of us approach it is, as we've talked about, remembering to take this medication can be difficult. Are you finding that it's difficult, mm -hmm. and how often are you able to take your medicine? Uh, and I think putting some of those terms in there make it very clear to the patient that we're not blaming them. We're saying, hey, we do know this is difficult. Tell us Absolutely. what's going on. And then we add the long-acting bronchodilator therapy or therapies to the anti-inflammatories, which is very helpful, but even that may not do everything we want it to in patients with severe asthma. And I think certainly just to add the long-acting beta agonist, the data to actually suggest that in truly severe asthma, that adding a long-acting beta agonist actually improves their outcomes is actually pretty modest um, once you get to a certain severity level. And I will have many patients, actually, who continue to take short-acting beta agonist two or more times a day, despite the fact that they're on their long-acting beta agonist. And in that case, I actually get concerned about all of the beta agonist load that they have. And in some cases, I will stop their long-acting beta agonist so that they're not being overly burdened with the, uh, the side effects of beta agonist therapy. And those certainly are possible. I do want to reassure people that in patients needing long-acting bronchodilators, beta agonists, they really have a very good safety profile oh, overall. But it is this compounding uh, that all of us worry about. You can take anything too much of water, if you drink too much of it, <laughs> it's still is a bad dangerous. Thing. Yep. Right. And so that's what we're talking about. We're not saying that these are dangerous in people with asthma. We're saying you don't want them to use the long acting and then have to use four or six puffs a day of the short acting. That's just more than we would like to have our patients have to use. And, and there are potential for cardiac effects and all of those sorts of things under, under those extreme conditions. Right, under those conditions. A and extreme conditions. Right, right. So the quick relievers, uh, we have the uh, short-acting beta-2 agonists, the short-acting anticholinergics, and we have the combination. Now, I find that's more helpful in COPD than it is in asthma, but do you use the combination short-acting very often? Very rarely, to be quite honest with you. I think most patients with asthma actually prefer just the, the beta agonist. I think if I'm really struggling to reduce the short-acting beta agonist use, then I will throw in an anticholinergic or a combination to try to taper down the amount of short-acting. But in general, I'm, I'm a fan of using albuterol as the primary uh, reliever. Well, but that's a good metric to say, well, this is when you might try it, yes. when you've got somebody that is using those six puffs a day. Can you get them down to two puffs a day uh, by using a different combination? Correct. The long-term controller therapy, certainly uh, the primary ones have been the anti-inflammatories because this is 
an inflammatory condition, so that's what we want to approach first. We've got the inhaled and the systemic corticosteroids. Obviously, we want to avoid the systemic corticosteroids, if at all possible. Uh, and we have the leukotriene modifiers, which also can be helpful. I think that they can be helpful across the age span, but I do find they're more helpful in younger patients, I think, and certainly in patients with an allergic profile or phenotype that we're going to talk about in mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. The bronchodilators, we've talked about the long-acting beta agonists, the long-acting uh, muscarinic receptor antagonists, LAMAs, the LABAs. There are still the methylxanthines, and we don't use them very often in the United States, but certainly around the world there are many places when that's the only thing that's really available and affordable. Inexpensive. Right. Yeah. And, of course, then there are the combination therapies that put multiple ones of these drugs together. And now we have a new category that we're going to talk a lot more about, the biologics. Uh, and these are mo uh, monoclonal antibodies. They are, I don't think there's any that are not injection, are they? They're all injection. Injection or infusion, correct. Infusion, mm -hmm. right. So they are a step up for burden of use, potentially, in some cases. But we'll talk about the fact that maybe having uh, a, a shot once every two or three weeks may be a lot easier for patients than other things. In some of course, cases. they're also very expensive, so you want to select the appropriate person to use them. So manage patient, managing patients who remain poorly controlled despite the typical therapy. So we're going to start talking about phenotypes, endotypes, potential biomarkers associated with severe asthma. What can we do that helps better define and identify these people so that we can personalize or individualize therapy? Mm -hmm. uh, as we talked about way in the beginning, <laughs> asthma is not asthma is not asthma. Correct. It is a very heterogeneous condition. And the more we can do, especially as patients get more symptomatic, to identify their specific individual types of asthma, then the better we can tailor therapy. Absolutely. So this, what this just says, uh, that many phenotypes have been suggested. Actually, not very many of the phenotypes are broadly accepted. That is correct. Uh, and so we talk about them, and one of the things that primary care people find is that if I have three allergists and two pulmonologists <laughs> I refer to, I'll have five different, different categories yep. of phenotypes. And so we all just have to realize when these are important and what can we do. And it's going to change, I think, as yes. we move forward. We're going to have a lot more well-defined phenotypes and be able to say, yes, you do want to check for this or that or the other. We have some now that we have talked about and will. So individualizing, tailoring, uh, personalized therapy, whatever you want to call it, uh, we really want to address the clinical manifestations, uh, the people that have more problems this time, that time, the ones that have seasonal allergic problems, those are kinds of things we think about. The physiological characteristics uh, can vary, and of course the outcomes. Uh, it seems there are patients whose body can tolerate a lot more than others, mm -hmm. and they won't be as symptomatic, and you expect them to be, but they aren't. So we, we think about that. The age of onset is really something we've talked more and more about. Uh, I always have to laugh when they talk about elderly asthma beginning at 50. I'm sorry, that isn't elderly. Those That's, are young people. Yes, they are. <laughs> but there is, it looks like quite a difference between the people who asthma started either in childhood or adolescence or young adulthood, and those whose asthma started later. Uh, we've talked about perimenopausal and postmenopausal mm -hmm. asthma as one that is sort of a, a defining characteristic. And I think people get into concerns when we have someone who develops asthma apparently the first time at age 50. It seems that a few of those, or quite a few of those, are also former smokers. 
And how do I distinguish? Is this asthma? Is this COPD? Is this both? Mm -hmm. And and it can be it can be difficult to, to do that. But I think the the general rules of asthma still apply. And unless a patient has smoked more than at least 15 to 20 pack years, I think the previous history of smoking has very little influence on the diagnosis of asthma in a 50-year-old who has new symptoms, so long as they meet all the other criteria for asthma, which is obviously reversible airflow limitation and meeting a bronchodilator response and having appropriate symptoms. So I think that the rules still apply, but you do have to factor in the amount of cigarette smoking that a patient has, uh, has completed prior to their uh, presentation. Well, and one of the things that I've heard people talk about is with asthma, people have good days and bad days. With COPD, they have not so good days and worse days. There are not many really good days in people with COPD. So the variability, variability which we said that's yep. a major characteristic, is one that we sometimes forget. I think that's a very good point. Uh, I think most people with COPD, the, the disease is much more steady day to day as compared to asthma, where there is a lot of the fluctuations. Yeah. So it's one of the important phenotypes maybe that they should talk about more and think mm -hmm. about is the variability. The phenotypes are generally based on clinical and physiological characteristics of the disease. Uh, some of them incorporate biomarkers. We've mentioned eosinophils several times uh, and IgE, and I'll let mm -hmm. you talk about those. And then the endotypes, the identification of a particular pathway which defines a disease. And I think endotypes are still very confusing for most of us in primary care. How do I recognize an endotype and asthma? What is it? Yeah, and, and again, we'll talk about that a, a little bit more as we go through this. But I think there are probably no types of asthma that have yet met the criteria of an endotype. I think we're still talking about molecular phenotypes where we know that there are pathways involved. We know that when we block certain pathways, patients get better. But the the identification of a specific pathway that we treat that pathway and everything gets better, I think there are very few, probably no, uh, cases of, of asthma that actually fit into a true endotype. Well, stage. that's uh, a little reassuring since I'm thinking, this is very confusing. I don't know of any, and now you tell me you don't know of any. <laughs> okay, I feel much better about endotypes now. Uh, and this is what we just, you just finished talking about. Uh, the phenotypes, observable characteristics uh, that are a result of an interaction with a genotype and the environment. Uh, people who are susceptible to uh, exposure to certain kinds of inhaled triggers, right. or if you want to call them that. Uh, the cluster of characteristics that define a disease and its subset, and I know you're going to talk about those TH2 and low TH2 and high TH2, and the endotype, as you just said, we don't have any of those quite yet. So I don't think we have to spend any time except to say we're really hoping that three to five years yeah, from now, we, we maybe will we will. We'll, we will be there. And we'll actually have defined a new disease, in my opinion, as opposed to a phenotype. Well, and I think that is important because, you know, we call everything that under this very large umbrella asthma, and I think all of us know it doesn't look like the same condition really or disease. Yep. So I think that'll be very exciting in the future. So the clinical phenotypes, the obese versus the non-obese, uh, the allergic versus the non-allergic, one of the things that I don't think that I pay enough attention to and a lot of times in primary care is occupational asthma and frequently the occupation isn't even recorded in the medical record. But there are several occupations that are clearly significant recurrent exposures mm -hmm. like bakers and all the flour that's all over mm -hmm. the place. But I think there are others too that we just don't think of. And, and certainly in the textbooks you have things like uh, painters and, and being exposed to isocyanates, um, uh, people that are in the, in the lumber industry and the same sort of thing. But I think there are new um, exposures that we don't think about nearly a, as often as we should, which are people that work in hair salons and, and all of the, the uh, sprays that are uh, in the environment, typically in a relatively closed space, not yes. with a lot of uh, good ventilation. And then um, 
domestic workers who are exposed to um, the, the cleaning fluids on a regular basis. All of those things can certainly influence uh, asthma and, and the asthmatic symptoms. So things to keep in mind for sure. Well, and for the healthcare professionals, many of them are exposed to cleaning fluids on a very regular basis, and it may not only be the the domestic or housekeeping staff, it may be the nursing staff, yeah, too. Yes, certainly. So if you've got somebody where, gee, this doesn't quite all make sense, think, occupation think about the occupation. needs to be considered. Yeah. And then, of course, the cell types. We've talked about the eosinophilic. We'll talk about neutrophilic. And then other uh, subdivisions like the uh, aspirin-associated exacerbations. Again, something I don't think we ask about. Frequently, the patients will come in after a while, though, and tell, tell you, you, I quit using aspirin because I always got into trouble. And then there's premenstrual asthma. Again, frequently, uh, those people will come in and tell you after a while, but it can take a long time a long to figure time. out. Yeah. And when someone's having uh, an exacerbation every month, and it's a woman, maybe you should think about menstrual, menstrual asthma and the, and the hormonal relationship that, that it bears. And just to make a point about the aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease too, it's not just aspirin, it's all non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can, can do this perhaps not acetaminophen, but all of the others uh, certain, certainly can. Um, and a patient doesn't have to be taking these regularly to have it be the cause of their asthma. Just having a reaction to it on the times that they do take it is enough to get that diagnosis. And that's really an important one because it is one you can avoid. And yes. that's what we're always looking for is something we can identify and, and then avoid, avoid easily. Mm -hmm. So the clinical phenotypes, uh, the work-related, we've talked about those, the sensitizer-induced, the irritant-induced, uh, and I think we worked on, we mentioned pretty much all of those. We didn't say anything about the nail technicians. But same thing. And it's the same thing. They just are in a very enclosed space. The accurate and timely diagnosis really is important for appropriate management. If you don't know this is an issue, you're not going to deal with it particularly well. And right. Some of these people really do have to change occupation before they're going to get sufficient relief. So there are immunological uh, and inflammatory markers that you can look at for these, uh, and I know you're going to talk about those. And the functional airway changes before and after work times, that's something we can do in primary care because if someone comes in and we decide, oh, you know, she is a hairdresser and I want to think about that, well, have her stop by on the way after work uh, mm -hmm. someday and see what it is and then have her come by, and I'm assuming it's a him, it could be a her too, uh, have them stop by when they've been off work for three or four yes, days absolutely. and see what the difference is. Uh, something that's, I'm not saying it's quick and easy, but it's, but it's doable. very doable in primary care. And you can even give them a peak flow meter, and they can actually record their peak flows um, on the weekend or whatever bef when they're at home and not exposed to the work mm -hmm. environment, see what it is over the weekend, and then have them record it every day as they are exposed to their work environment to see if there's a decline in their peak flow. Well, and I think that's important because most of us have sort of written off peak flow meters mm -hmm. because it's very difficult to give a patient a peak flow meter without any specifics like this and just say, well, take it whenever yeah, right. they lose them. But when you have something like this, it's a very specific, okay, we're just going to do this over the yeah, next uh, two, two weeks, weeks and I want you to keep track. Is it, you know, after work, during work, when you've been off? Then I think you get really good engagement mm -hmm. with the patient Correct. and I think they'll do it because they'd like their asthma to be better so I think that's an excellent tip for people to try to do um, and you know the avoidance of the inciting agent you have to figure out what the inciting yep. agent is first if you're going to avoid it and you try to keep their exposure at a minimum uh, and there are some ways to do that besides stopping their yes, uh, occupation entirely. 
and I think it's important to try to address right. those. And, you know, sometimes it may be just um, working with their employer to develop an, a better ventilation system, right? Um, to, to move from being in the, the back machine shop to being in the upfront office um, uh, related to their profession, and, and then obviously respirators and, and the, the baggage that comes along with having to wear a mask uh, while, you're, while you're working. But if people really like what they do, these are sometimes alternatives to actually having to change their profession. And for them may be a very appropriate alternative because this may be the only profession that is feasible Correct. for them. Correct. So challenge regarding clinical phenotypes. Well, there's really no specific test for many of these phenotypes. Uh, Obesity-induced asthma, there are a fair number of people who are obese, and it may or may not be a Absolutely. major role in their asthma, so that's kind of difficult. Uh, and there are no universally accepted definitions of some of the phenotypes. There are a, of a few, a few sure. but not all of them. And it ch can change over time. I mean, you know, that's yep. the tricky part is that, okay, it was this now and now it's something different. And we really tend not to think about these phenotypes. And as we've said, especially the occupational ones that mm -hmm. we just plain ignore. Right. So in 2019, going into 2020, I think we're trying to expand on our understanding of phenotypes by becoming um, a little bit more molecular in our approaches. And so we can now begin to think about asthma as being defined by certain cells or certain molecules in association with that phenotype, which hopefully at the end of the day will make it much more objective in how we identify patients and allow us to target therapies appropriate for that specific molecular phenotype. When they're defined by biomarkers, um, it's important that we measure these biomarkers over time because just like the clinical aspects, these aspects can change over time, so we want to see patterns. And it's very important to note that when we're using eosinophils as a biomarker, eosinophils in the blood on that complete blood count CBC that we've been um, mentioning several times now, it's actually very important to note when you're drawing that blood count in relationship to oral steroids or oral prednisone, medrol, et cetera, because prednisone, medrol, other steroids should in fact wipe out all of your eosinophils. And so you'll have patients come up with zero eosinophils and you'll say, well, they don't have eosinophilic asthma. And it's because the steroids have actually suppressed them. And even patients on very high doses of inhaled corticosteroids, you can have suppression of eosinophils on the basis of that. So it is important to know where you're, uh, where in time you're measuring these, these biomarkers. But other things like having an upper respiratory infection or because you ha there are, yes, you may specifically get this just for mm -hmm. their asthma, mm -hmm. but when we look back, they have had several CBCs with differential over the past. Does uh, a URI shoot the eosinophils up high or? It can depend on what's the cause of the URI, and I think a lot of times things are called URIs when they're actually just a flare of the chronic rhinosinusitis that goes along with um, severe asthma, and in many of those cases, you will see a bump in eosinophils that occurs during that time. I think if it's a bacterial infection in the sinuses, then you're certainly less likely to see it. But again, it doesn't hurt to check. It's an inexpensive test, and it clearly gives you, you information. And I think we understand that eosinophils are really at the heart of the inflammation that we describe as asthmatic inflammation in, in many cases. Probably at least 50% of asthma has an eosinophilic component um, to it. And steroids uh, in, inhibit this eosinophilic inflammation. That's one of the reasons why uh, corticosteroids are effective is that in most people, mild to moderate asthma, those eosinophils will be suppressed by the corticosteroids. On the other hand, people have talked about neutrophilic asthma. This is, to me, a bit of a quagmire at the present time. It's very poorly defined. There are no simple tests to define it. You cannot look at the neutrophils on a blood count and say, oh, this is neutrophilic asthma, uh, because there's no thresholds. There's huge variability. Steroids make the neutrophils go up. So it's, it's a bit of, uh, of an unknown area at the, at the present time. And you're not going to ask me to do sputum neutrophils. And, and 
nor would I do sputum neutrophils, <laughs> because even sputum neutrophils are very highly variable, don't track very well with symptoms or lung function changes or, or whatever. So uh, I think eosinophils, we can feel pretty comfortable with neutrophils we're still struggling with. But based on this concept of eosinophilic inflammation and based on the drugs that have been developed over the last five to 10 years, I think we can pretty clearly say that asthma can be broken down into those patients that have evidence of type 2 inflammation or those patients that have no or very little evidence for type 2 inflammation. And what do I mean by type 2 inflammation? I mean type 2 inflammation that is associated primarily with an eosinophil as the end cell that we're measuring, but which is probably driven by a specific group of cytokines called type 2 or Th2 cytokines. They used to be thought only to be made by T helper cells, but now we know they're made by other things too. So they've come to this type 2 cytokines, which are IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13 in the most simple and, and um, uh, logical sense. So this is an example of type 2 inflammation. This is your typical diagram that every asthma um, uh, um, presentation that you've ever been to has had at least one of these slides right, of the pathobiology of asthma. Uh, and I think we realize that the patients with type 2 high asthma have some mix of these cytokines and these cells involved. Uh, in most cases, these, uh, these pathways involve activation of mast cells, eosinophils, certain lymphocyte subsets, Th2 cells, and now this new type of lymphocyte called an innate lymphoid cell or an ILC2 cell. Uh, and again, this type of inflammation seems to be associated with about half of the asthma population. And I think in the severe asthma population, it's probably a little higher than that. It's probably closer to 60 to 70%. But that's why measuring these biomarkers, the blood eosinophils or things like exhaled nitric oxide in exhaled breath can be so important because they help us to identify who are the patients that have this type 2 asthma versus those that don't. And when it comes to our new treatment options, it's going to be very important to know, does this patient fall into that broad category of type 2 asthma versus non-type 2 or less type 2 asthma? So we really, I think, transitioned uh, from this concept of clinical phenotyping to molecular phenotyping that to this personalized precision approach to uh, the, the treatment of asthma that, again, starts with a, an appropriate diagnosis of making sure the patient has asthma. Do they, in fact, have severe asthma or refractory asthma? And then starting to put them into little bins based on their clinical characteristics, their phenotypes. Um, their molecular phenotypes, what do their biomarkers look like, and maybe someday we'll get to genotype, but we really aren't to that, uh, to that place yet. And then identifying on the basis of those biomarkers whether they're a type 2 high patient or a type 2 low patient. Although people talk about sputum and how you can identify eosinophils and neutrophils in, in sputum and put a patient into a certain categories using that, it's probably not ever going to become mainstream in any practice in the United States. Um, certainly not in, in specialist care, and I would doubt very highly in primary care, because they're difficult tests to do. They're difficult tests to standardize. Many people can never bring up sputum to begin with. And so, again, we're really going to sort of ignore the, the sputum analysis of, of, of molecular phenotyping at this point and, and uh, focus on, on tests that are a little bit easier to obtain. Well, when we can do spit eosinophils, then we might have a chance. <laughs> spit eosinophils. People have been talking about, um, you know, getting it in your nose and, and could you identify eosinophils in the nose. But the bottom line is the blood is pretty good. And that's pretty easy. And the easy. blood is pretty easy, and it's pretty inexpensive. Right. And it does, I would encourage every person who has an electronic medical records, as you've been saying all along, is to go back through the electronic medical records and look over the last five years at the eosinophils, the, the complete blood counts. Chances are a patient has had one or two of them in the, in the past, maybe more, and see if there were ever, was ever evidence for elevated eosinophils above traditionally 300 as a sort of starting um, point, uh, but could be a range. And then also addressing the allergy component. So things like IgE levels, total IgE levels, but specific IgE levels are probably more important to look to see that whether the patient is actually making specific IgE antibodies to things like dust mites, cats, dogs, et cetera. Um, and then we've already talked about induced sputum, and we've dismissed that. We're not going to talk about that, that anymore. And then exhaled breath, 
I think there is going to be a movement in exhaled breath over the next several years. Now, the only thing that we measure in exhaled breath right now is nitric oxide. Right. Um, and that is an indicator of type 2 inflammation in the airways. Nitric oxide is produced by cells that line the airways of patients with asthma, and you can measure it in, in their breath on a relatively simple, relatively inexpensive piece of, of equipment. I don't know whether it will become mainstream in primary care or not. In many specialist offices, they don't still have it, so I don't know, you know whether it will go to primary care or not. But the point is, um, just by having a patient exhale into a machine, you can get some indication of what type of, of asthma that they have. And I think we're going to be able to become more granular with this approach, measuring things in the breath, which, again, children can do. It's non-invasive. You're not sticking a needle in, in folks and, and potentially get a lot of additional information. And I think when we find that we can get really useful information, I think it has a chance because, as you said, it is very doable. It is not difficult. And it doesn't take nearly as long as spirometry does, for right. example, right. to do. It can be done in five minutes. Right. It's just that right now, uh, if you don't use it frequently, then it seems it's expensive to do on a per-test basis. Right. And it should guide your therapy. If you're not making a change in therapy on the basis of measuring it, then it's probably then don't not, bother. Not, not, yeah. worry, not worry about it either. Uh, so again, why should we use biomarkers? To guide therapy. That's ex exactly what we're talking about here. That biomarkers should be associated with a diagnosis and a specific treatment that, that follows it. I think you want to document uh, the characteristics of the, of the biomarker, and we should be able to identify its association with clinical patterns to the disease, not just that, oh, there's an eosinophil there. Does, what does it associate with? Um, it should identify a phenotype which responds better to certain therapies. So again, back to that point of it should be guiding therapy. And then it should in ideally be a monitoring biomarker so that if we start a therapy and the biomarker goes down, we know that that therapy is actually working, that there's a molecular process that is being targeted by that therapy and that biomarker is now getting better. So you can have a predictive biomarker, something that predicts response to treatment, and then a monitoring biomarker which responds to that treatment if, again, that treatment is appropriate for that person. And exhaled nitric oxide really does yes, do both. Yes, exhaled nitric oxide absolutely does, does both. It gives you a type 2 phenotype and in either the case of uh, corticosteroids or some of these new type 2 biologics will go down in response to therapy. So really only four asthma biomarkers have been uh, validated and are readily available. They include blood eosinophils, total and specific IgE levels, which again, uh, Dr. Yan has been talking about throughout the uh, presentations, and exhaled nitric oxide. There's not specific guidelines about how often to measure these biomarkers, how regularly to measure these biomarkers, but at least from my perspective, if you have someone where you have no history of what their inflammatory biomarkers look like, you should at least measure them three to four times over a period of a year or two years or whatever to get a pattern of whether they're elevated or not, and do they correlate in any way to their clinical symptoms, to their clinical presentations, to the stability of, of their asthma. And again, avoid measuring during um, systemic corticosteroid bursts, uh, even including up to two to four weeks after the prednisone has been stopped because you will have a long-term effect on it. I like to recommend that every adult asthmatic has a complete blood count with a differential at least once. And if you have a blood count of greater than 300 eosinophils per microliter, that should be considered evidence of type 2 inflammation. Uh, and I think you have to be careful because on the laboratory uh, printouts or readouts, the laboratories have different thresholds for what's normal and abnormal. And even in, in our <laughs> laboratories, um, there are some that go up to 700 for normal eosinophils. A 700 is not a normal eosinophil <laughs> count. Say. And so a busy physician who kind of looks down and says, what's abnormal? It may not even be checked as yeah. abnormal. So you actually have to specifically look for it. And again, if a patient is on oral corticosteroids, the eosinophil should be zero. And if the eosinophils are not zero in that case, you certainly have to address adherence. Are they taking their medications? But do they have a very refractory type of, of asthma, which we absolutely do see, where even though they're taking systemic corticosteroids, they still have elevated eosinophils. Those are patients you really get concerned about. And those are ones that really go to the specialist immediately. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> I say so, yes. <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, okay, so managing patients with severe asthma. How do we decide who goes where? Who stays in primary care? Who should be referred to as a specialist? And, and of course, the answers aren't always straightforward. So let's start with Tara. So Tara's a 46-year-old woman. Uh, she developed asthma about five years ago, didn't really have any previous history of breathing problems, um, no history of seasonal allergies, never required any prescription therapy. Um, but, you know, she developed symptoms when she was 41. So she was older, certainly. Uh, five years ago, she developed increasing wheeze, cough, shortness of breath, things that go along with an asthma diagnosis. Uh, she was, in fact, prescribed low-dose inhaled corticosteroids and short-acting beta-agonists very appropriately. But despite that therapy, her symptoms worsened. She's now been marched up the scale, and she's now on uh, high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, plus a long-acting beta-agonist, plus a leukotriene uh, uh, receptor antagonist. And she's still using her albuterol twice a day. So she's at our threshold of going through that canister a month. And she wakes up at least once a week. Uh, she reports that her symptoms are worse just before the weekend. She's actually been to the emergency department twice, uh, both on Friday nights, interestingly, so good, good to know. Uh, and her family history, no real history of, that's significant for asthma. But interestingly, when you do ask that question about what is her occupation, she says that she worked at the counter of a bakery about five years ago, but there, there's no current update, so we don't really know. We look back through the medical records, and yes, yeah, she was working in the bakery but five years ago. So we do the testing, we do our spirometry, because she's pretty symptomatic at this stage. She's on a lot of medication, yeah. so it's important for us to do spirometry. And her lung function shows she's pretty obstructed. Her FEV1 is 64% of predicted. She's got a big bronchodilator response. And her eosinophils, to my point, are reported as normal at 300 eosinophils per microliter. Which is not normal. Which is not normal. And again, she still reports this, I feel better on Monday, but by Fridays, I require albuterol four times a day. Still working at the same job. So you ask her where you're working. Oh, I'm still, I'm still working at the bakery. But then you dig a little bit deeper. And now she's actually working in the bakery. She's not selling the pastries at the front counter. She's actually baking the bread. Um, and she's exposed to flour. She's exposed to yeast. She's exposed to yeast. She doesn't wear a mask because she never really thought about it. Uh, and you sort of the light, bulb, uh, the light bulb goes off and you say, hmm, this could be Baker's asthma. This could be an occupational related lung disease. And so you ask her to monitor her peak flows from Monday through Friday. And there's clearly a drop as the week progresses, which confirms the diagnosis of occupational Baker's asthma in this situation. And so what are the treatment options? Well, you know, if she really wants to be a baker, then she should wear a respirator if she's really enjoying making the bread. But she could also potentially have another location in the bakery. She could go back to the counter where she started work um, at five years ago, and in fact, that may be enough to reduce her symptoms. You could ask the owners to install better ventilation, or probably worst case scenario, she could change jobs. Asking patients to change jobs <laughs> is a horrible situation. Yeah. None of us like to be in that. So she returned to the uh, counter. She's now selling, selling donuts as opposed to making them, and her symptoms improve. She's only using her albuterol one time per day, and she's clearly better. And this is, a, again, a, a case where you've intervened, you've improved the asthma by just uh, having her change her occupational um, location, actually, as opposed to her occupation. Interestingly, she will probably continue to have some symptoms because she is still going to be exposed to the, to the, the yeast and the flour even though she's at the front counter. But with occupational asthma, there's good data to say even if she completely leaves that position and finds another job, she's still going to have some symptoms. So the asthma response has been triggered, and it's very unlikely it will actually ever go away. All right, one more case. Charles, would you refer Charles? So Charles is 22, he's had his asthma since the age of six, childhood onset, getting back to that when yeah. did you get your asthma, again, very important, very easy question to ask, um, has had problems with recurrent exacerbations despite moving away from home where nah, dad smokes. He's been using Montelukast and high-dose combination therapy, and he says he uses it most of the time. And in fact, you actually call the pharmacy and he's refilled it 10 times over 12 months, which Again, that's, that's close to 80%. Good. That's pretty good. Um, and his inhaler technique is okay. Um, but he's coming up on his third exacerbation of the year. 
three exacerbations in one year where he's gotten um, oral steroids, prednisone. And his ACT is 16, which is uncontrolled asthma. You review possible comorbidities and find only maybe some seasonal allergies, but it's really not strong. And, and he's been to the emergency room in times where he's not in his season of his allergies. So, Dr. Yon, what would you do as your next steps? Well, certainly you're going to think back through making sure he has asthma, for one thing. The fact that he started at six, he has a very typical history of asthma starting in childhood and going on. Uh, the triggers and the allergy testing, which we may do for seasons, for example, if they match, that's pretty suggestive. Uh, sinus disease, post-nasal drip, he has the kinds of comorbidities that we see. Uh, does he have GERD? I don't know. Occupational, I don't know what he does. We he's didn't young, know. maybe he's still a student at this time. Okay, he's still a student. Well, I, that for anxiety, but uh, <laughs> the other exposure is probably not occupational. The spirometry, the pre and post bronchodilator, I need to do that yes, because I so. really want to make sure that he does have the reversibility that I expect. And I just want to see what his FEV1 looks like. How low is it? As I said, I find that they are usually lower than I expect them mm -hmm. to be, and I think that's true for most of us. Bloody eosinophil count, because I'm now starting to think, I believe that he definitely has asthma. It looks like asthma that is getting uncontrolled. He does seem to be adherent. I, of course, have to check his inhaler technique, and mm -hmm. when we check it, it looks pretty good. So now I'm in the realm of... I don't see a comorbidity that exactly explains this. Adherence doesn't explain it. Inhaler technique doesn't explain it. So I'm starting to get concerned. So the blood eosinophils are important. Uh, pheno, if I happen to have it available, <laughs> that will be great. Uh, and we talked about the allergy testing, which I right. think is real important. So I'm now starting to think that he is sort of at the top. He's at step four or five, depending on what you think is high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, right. and he's not doing well. So yes, this is the kind of patient that I very well may say, help. Right, and, and, and I think um, from my specialist, wearing my specialist hat, I think if you have a patient who is on a reasonable regimen of asthma medications, the four to, four to five step sort of category, you've addressed the comorbidities, you've addressed adherence, um, and that patient is still having issues, then it's probably time to have someone step in who, can, who has potentially more uh, comfort with, with um, some of the more complicated testing that can be done. In, well, I think it's patients. not just comfort. I think uh, hopefully you have more expertise. <laughs> you spend a lot of time working right, in this correct, area. Correct. Uh, and one of the things that I think many of us realize is that you may also have people in your office. If I was worried about uh, adherence or inhaler technique or things like that, you may have uh, an asthma educator or someone else who can spend the time. time. And I may not have anybody in my practice Correct. who has that kind of Correct. time or expertise. So we, as primary care, refer both for your expertise, but also for some of the resources you have in your office. Correct. Correct. And, and I think just being able to spend more time with a patient sometimes is a true ad advantage. So again, things you want to address, the, the comorbidities, you want to address lifestyle changes, exposures at work, the occupational piece, do that spirometry. If there is a large bronchodilator response, then you might consider adding a long-acting muscarinic. Um, bloody eosinophils in the exhaled nitric oxide are high. Well, you can consider systemic corticosteroids. They'll probably go down, but the long-term side effects of right. systemic corticosteroids are really not something we want to have to have to no, face. That, it's not an acceptable long-term plan solution. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then things like allergy testing. Uh, you know, you still want to match your symptoms with your allergy testing. So if somebody says that they're, um, whatever, uh, the, the spring is always their worst season, but they have no grass allergies, well, it's probably not a true grass allergy. So they should, the symptoms should match the, the testing. And if they do, then you might want to consider allergy re referral or consider for, for biologic therapy. And I think in all of these cases, once you've, again, got this patient in front of you who's remaining uncontrolled despite addressing all of these issues on high-dose medication, think about referral to, to a specialist. 
So when they, when they see that specialist, that specialist now will have on his or her um, opportunities to treat this patient type 2 targeted therapies. And we sort of talked about type 2 uh, biomarkers. Now we can talk about the biologic therapies that are targeted to those patients that have elevations in the type two, uh, those type 2 biomarkers. So there are five currently available biologic therapies for uh, the treatment of patients with severe refractory type 2 high asthma. Um, they're most effective in patients with evidence of type 2 inflammation, including those who have high elevated eosinophils. Typically, 300 was the starting point, 300 or above, but there are some now that can go down as low as 150 and above, and then at least one of them was developed on the basis of 400 and above. High exhaled nitric oxide in that breath, exhaled breath, uh, probably greater than 20 parts per billion if uh, uh, you're going to use a biologic, a type 2 targeted biologic on the basis of that exhaled nitric oxide, and then demonstrated allergy for, for anti-IgE. Um, you likely will benefit by having three or more um, recur three or more recent complete blood counts to determine whether the patient is eosinophilic or type 2 high, and again, just don't don't do one CBC and rely on, on that. It's, it's helpful to have more than one. Uh, and again, this need for bloody eosinophil testing over time when a patient is symptomatic before starting corticosteroids, um, that's really a good time to, to get that complete blood count. Uh, I always argue that when a patient goes to the emergency room before they get their IV solumedrol and you're putting that IV in, draw a complete blood count, draw a CBC and get that differential because that's the, the easiest time um, uh, to get it and the patient is very symptomatic. At, and and at that's that a real change because, you know, for many, many years we said, don't bother. The WBC isn't going to give you any information of how you're going to treat the asthma exacerbation. And now we're saying, well, it isn't just the, the total white count. It is the eosinophil-specific. Yeah, correct. Uh, and you could get, instead of the CBC, you could get an absolute eosinophil count. But I've always found those are more expensive. They're more expensive than so a CBC. So why bother? Correct. <laughs> Correct. A absolutely. And sometimes you'll find something else, like they have a low hemoglobin or something, which can, can be helpful, too. Right. So get the CBC with the differential. Uh, and again, if the patient's already on oral steroids, they really should have no evidence of blood eosinophils. So in summary, I think we've begun to now start to identify different subphenotypes uh, of asthma. Uh, that to do that, we need to address poor inhaler technique, adherence, comorbidities, again, to make sure we've addressed all the, quote, easy things, which really aren't so easy, um, that we want to optimize the pharmacologic management before you get to the biologic agents. Additional diagnostic testing, at least things like spirometry and a CBC and, and specific IgE testing, I think, can be very uh, helpful. And then using all of that information that we have obtained, including how the patient is doing, to identify whether it's time to refer that patient to uh, a uh, uh, specialist or not. And I think it's fine to err on the side, perhaps, of more referrals instead of fewer referrals. And I think we now err on the side of waiting too long. So I think with these new abilities to identify phenotypes, it is a little easier to say, whoa, I have this phenotype and they may be candidates for therapy that I'm not comfortable addressing. So earlier referral frequently. On behalf of the American Thoracic Society and the American Academy of Family Physicians, thank you so much for joining us for this very important educational program. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American Thoracic Society and is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP and GlaxoSmithKline. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.